This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the porncast that really wants to believe in alien probes because that is our fetish and I totally masturbated to it this morning. I'm your co-host Yvette Dontremont. Here's my lovely, not at all turned on by aliens, <laughs> wink, uh, co-host Alice Vaughn. Alice, how turned on are you by the thought of an alien invasion, if you know what I mean? Well, it depends on what species they are and what do they look like. Do we have alien species, like specific alien species that we're thinking of now? I think uh, we are all thinking of like the Roswell type aliens, you know, mouthless, tall, skinny, really pale, long fingers. Looks a lot like my exes. I was just going to say you're describing like the perfect woman. Like, is she in fashion? (laughs) Who is she? (laughs) It's Anna Wintour. (laughs) Exactly. I was describing every supermodel from the 90s. No mouth, tall. The aliens are actually all just Twiggy. All have a Coke habit. We just get the Twiggies and Cape Mosses. Like one new one comes down every 20 years or so. Yeah. How do you think they get that thin? It's not an eating disorder. It's the probes. No mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So that third voice you're hearing today is writer, comedian, adult performer, and makeup maven, Sovereign Sire. Hi. (laughs) And I say makeup maven because your makeup is always on point. It was pretty epic at where we first met you. It was the Expos Awards, I believe. Oh, yeah. Me and and Ella made quite a spectacle when we walked the red carpet during the ceremony. (laughs) There was a whole series of pictures of me just rolling around on the red carpet, like on all fours, doing my own photo shoot. We were just enough apart in line that I missed that. And this this is a tragedy and I need to go find those pictures. Yeah, they're pretty great. <laughs> Actually, I'm like, open bar, porn stars. I mean, what did they expect to happen? I got a little too... And this is weird for me, of all people, to say I got too high at an event because it is damn near impossible for me to get too high, even on an edible. But this happened. And late in the evening, I just was at the point where I was unable to... Not unable, but was not talking much. And that's how you can tell that I am mm, past the point of no return, is that I'm like, I know if I open my mouth, words will not make sense. So I'm not going to talk too much. And Alice, what I told her later on, I'm like, I was way too high. She was like, what? I had no idea. I'm like, it's just because I was quiet for once. That's the symptom. When I'm on a good high, like when I get quiet, it's like I'm busy. Like I'm just, I always say I'm like the Adina Monsoon at the orgy. If you watch Absolutely Fabulous, there's like this ongoing thing of anytime they're remembering Patsy and Adina, anytime they're remembering being at an orgy, like in the flashback, it's like Patsy's like fucking everybody and everything's wild. And then to like pan over and you just see Adina like really high in the corner by herself, just like <laughs> rocking herself. And I'm like, oh, that's that's me when I'm high. That's me at the drug orgy. That's me at the sex orgy. Like I'm just I'm just sitting there like watching it all happen and like having my own experience. <laughs> I recently got a fact checker because I got a column at Mel and I'm doing historical stuff. And I have a friend, a really good friend that I'm doing another project with that is an archaeologist and like a Rhodes Scholar. And I sent him my first piece. I'm doing this history of the strap-on. And he's like, oh, I'm glad you sent this to me because I had to change literally everything. (laughs) It's like all of your history, bad. And I was like, it was very humbling, but I was like, thank goodness I thought to fucking do it. You know what I mean? Like, I was, yeah, I was like, you know, is- just because like, if you're a woman trying to be smart on the internet, you kind of know that everyone's going to come for you. 
So oh, yeah. Yeah. you got to like triple it's, check everything because they're waiting for you to fuck up. I, I don't know if you're familiar with my writing at all, but I debunk assholes who are trying to sell bullshit. And that involves a lot of research. Like my pieces have involved one called Diet Coke is not killing you. And we had to research that very carefully to make sure that we weren't putting out incorrect information. Uh, I did one debunking chiropractic, did one going really hard after Gwyneth Paltrow and these types of things because we're going after industries and people who would rather not be debunked because they make their money off of nobody looking, you know, peeking behind the curtain. Like we have to get a lot of fact checkers on it and make sure that our sources are accurate. And it's easy to miss that your source is inaccurate and just saying something, you know, pulling something out of their ass. Well, I thought that was correct. Like it's hard to do these things and you need an army behind you. It's, you know, a couple fact checkers and a lawyer sometimes to make sure that the language won't screw you over. So speaking of which, what is the history of the strap-on? Indeed. Um, Well, I was doing the article because there's sort of strapping has become more popular than ever. Like recently in Men's Health Magazine, like, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, there was a whole thing about how to strap and all this kind of like how to get strapped. And I was like, in Men's Health, wow, like, let's talk about this. What? That progressive bastion. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, this is the, the keepers of masculinity if they're writing about it. And I remember when the Broad City episode came out a few years ago where one of the characters is in bed with the guy and he's asked if she wants to switch it up and she thinks he means switch positions and she, and then he pulls out a strap on. And instead of being repulsed by it, she kind of gives into it with glee. And then the rest of the episode, she's sort of waxing philosophical about sort of what an amazing experience this was. So the, the column I'm doing is called Everything's Fucked. And the premise of it is that sort of every modern convention that we have around sex usually has like a long history behind it. We just don't realize it because every generation thinks they invented sex. So I decided to take on the strap on. And so the thing is, is like, as long as people have existed, the dildo has been around. As long as people have been fucking, they've been trying to find different ways to do it. And so the article just takes you through these steps of the way strap-ons are used is becomes very much um, a reflection of the culture surrounding it, which is kind of the overriding theory of my column itself is that everything is sexual. Like everything is about the human drive to get laid, essentially. Like I always think of there's a Coen Brothers movie called Burn After Reading. Oh, I love that movie. So it's kind of a metaphor for what I'm talking about, which is you have the George Clooney character who's this sort of mysterious rapscallion kind of guy that we are following through the movie is like all of these spy government caper kind of cloak and dagger shit is going on. And the whole time he's sort of down in his basement working on something and we're not sure what it is. You know, it's like, is it the nuclear codes? Is it whatever? People are killed. There's all kinds of spy versus spy action going on. This whole series of, of events is kicked into gear all around sort of the behavior of this guy. And sort of at the end of the the movie, he leads his lover down into the basement. You know, we're going to see like what this, this thing is that he's been building or working on or whatever. And it's a fucking bicycle powered dildo. <laughs> and I remember watching that and going, that is the most apt metaphor for human society right there. Is that all of it, everything people do, no matter how abstract it is, Everything is put into motion by the will to fuck, the drive to fuck. You know, that, that's kind of everyone aspires to power, to beauty, to everything else because they're trying to get laid. And that can get abstracted like throughout the sophistication of a culture. But that is kind of the basic nugget of it. 
And so uh, in talking about the strap-on, I kind of postulate that the reason it's become more popular now is because of the trans rights movement. And that over the last, like, say, three to five years, there's been a really public discourse about what is gender. And that looks at gender as like there's gender, there's sex, and there's sexuality, which is a Venn diagram that has a lot of overlap, but not always. And so now we're more used to this idea of, you know, women that have penises. And when I was with trans women, say, 10 years ago, it was very common in a sexual encounter. They wouldn't even want me to touch their penis or anything because it was it was it, it triggered a lot of dysphoria. Now, when I'm with trans women, there seems to be a lot more kind of ease about that. And I think that's just a reflection of that it's more accepted now that genitals aren't necessarily a determinant of sexuality or gender. And I was yeah. also talking about how when I first got into porn 10 years ago, not only were crossover talent or bisexual male talent taboo, but even male talent that did strap scenes where they got strapped by a woman were considered kind of gay and dangerous. And part of that was around sort of the stigma of HIV. So like homophobia was couched in terms of safety and medicalization, but it was just homophobia. But the backup thing was like, well, they might bring AIDS in here. Like that was, that was the front line, but that was really just a cover for a general cultural homophobia. And now like Michael Vegas has his site, peghim.com. And it's like wildly popular and it hasn't impacted his bookings or anything. I have a deep abiding anything. love for Michael Vegas. Yeah. But so the, the article's just kind of talking about how people tend to think of sex as this place where we're free, but actually sex is the place where everything that's oppressing you kind of gets doubled down and reified. So these ideas about dominance and submission and the man wears the penis. And if you strap on a dick, you become the man. Or if you take the dick, you become a woman. All of that is reinforced when we fuck. And so I kind of draw a parallel between a greater acceptance of pegging and all of this kind of stuff having to do with more relaxed attitudes around that. Because in porn, it used to be even just like what fucking positions you were in could be gay. And gay was bad because gay was dangerous. I mean, it was like really, it was like a layer cake. You know what I mean? It was sort of. And it's crazy because as you mentioned, you got in 10 years ago. So, I mean, we're talking about 2010 to 2020 of even our mindset on certain positions, you know, taking on certain meanings, which is insane. Well, like one of the ones I want to do is this whole thing about like eating ass. You know what I mean? It's that like, so I talk about pegging, taking into the pantheon, you know, eating ass and like the millennial fucking sexual milieu, this disruptive practices is that even talking about eating ass or anything, like you never saw men getting their ass eaten in porn until recently. I remember like Blacked is hugely popular and very mainstream in a lot of ways. And I remember when they started showing girls like eating these guys' asses. And especially with Black culture and masculinity within Black culture, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's really taboo around anything that might be considered gay. And that's so the article's talking about like even getting your ass eaten or like by a woman, it doesn't matter because the, the position you have to get in to do it is somehow perceived as, as gay or because if you're on all fours or if you have your legs thrown back to make it easier for her to access your asshole to eat it, that that's gay because that's what women do during sex. There's, there's so many layers around <laughs> sex and, yeah. and femininity and masculinity. 
What's also really interesting is within Black culture is that they tend to be more religious as a whole. So you have, for example, like Yvette and I are atheists. So you find actually it's very seldom to find actually atheists who are, you know, African-American just because it's harder to come out because a lot of their culture is rooted within religion because of slavery. So like, I don't know, I would have to see the numbers. I don't know if that might be anecdotally true or if that's... I I could be wrong. I'm going to guess there are as many Black people who do not believe or who aren't actively involved in a faith as white people, but just don't fucking tell their family about it because, you know, I don't want to make grandma angry. I think in Black culture that church definitely plays more of a social role. Yeah. That's what I was trying to go for. So I think that for sure that there's more of a a sense of like a moral police and it's kind of like uh, in, in Judaism, there are tons of Jews who uh, don't believe and are still going to get their kid bar mitzvahed because that's just that's what you do. It's much more of a social thing, at least with American Jews. I wasn't trying to imply, sorry, uh, that, you know, it has anything to do with them being black. It has more to do with the religiosity of, you know, the dominant submission culture. Then that might play into it. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, it'd be a good. I'm sure there's been stuff written about that. And I think like we're finding now that there's all this scholarship that just has never been pushed into the fore, into the canon in school or anywhere else because of white supremacy. <laughs> so there's an interesting thing I saw a while ago from a few of, of like there are a couple of, of black people we actually know from uh, atheist conventions, uh, Victor Harris and uh, Alex Jules. And there I believe it was those two I've seen post about this article saying that originally uh, slave masters would use religion partially as a way to control the slaves and tell them, you know, this is your place, be subservient. It's what God wants. Uh, and they would use the Bible to justify this. And the flip side of that is slaves would find comfort or they would find some amount of, you know, I'm going to pray to get out of this. And that was something to cling on to. And there's kind of a dual uh, thing that was happening there. And people stayed in those prayer and those uh, religious structures after leaving. So what we're trying to say is there's a reason why there's a current social stigma to eating ass and it goes back to slavery and religion. It really does. Like if you look at religion as a means of social control, you can go back to Caliban and the witch. And I talk about Caliban and the witch in my article about how after the plagues decimated the population, you know, the aristocracy was out of workers. And so they contrived with the clergy to start uh, dictating this message about go forth and multiply. And that, That you know, like what made you a woman and a good citizen was how many children you could produce and staying in the home and that kind of rhetoric. And that sort of the basically the rise of capitalism goes foot like lock and step with the rise of fears of witchcraft because it was about sort of controlling and conscripting women's roles within the household where they had been actually a lot more divergent and various before the dark ages. And then of course, in slavery um, in France and in Spain, the colonial model was absolutely to, you wanted to convert. And then you taught a religion that said that everyone is born into their place and that you sought heaven in the afterlife. And that was determined by good works in this life and sort of knowing your station. So absolutely it was a really effective means of, controlling people. But just like then, it's like a lot of people converted in name only to survive. So they're like, sure, that's what we're doing now. Yeah, I'll pray to a cross instead of a pentagram, whatever you want. Right. But like over time, it does get lost. And yeah, I think that church is absolutely kind of a place where a lot of 
of social norms are put into place, a sense of community, especially in a world that's kind of increasingly virtual and isolated and specialized. We're not all at the village well, you know, drawing water at the same time anymore. So we have to create spaces in which we come together and agree on like our values and reaffirm what our values are. And just a fun story about epidemiology, the village well is where we first got our our first taste of contact tracing in a cholera outbreak back in London. That is how epidemiology was born, was at a village well. Were the village people born at a village well? No. They were born in the West Village. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Please don't all convene at the village well. That's how coronavirus gets you. Yeah. No, I was researching that because me and and Susie Q did an episode of Ill Repute on Typhoid Mary. And so I did a little bit of like a dive into sort of our understanding of germ theory and all of that stuff. I'm really interested in the 18th century. And I have this book called The Fragrant and the Foul, which is a smell in the French social imagination in in the 1800s because I'm a... I'm a saucy hot lady. Um, that sounds delightful. It's a fucking amazing book. What is it? The, uh, the Foul and the Fragrant. The Foul and the Fragrant. I'm jotting that down now just because it sounds pungent. It's basically like a history of smells, but it also talks about miasmas and ideas about, you know, that they used to think of the air as like a kind of liquid. It was just one you couldn't see oh, and yeah. that um, the humors and these ideas that they had about balance you know, like burping and farting yeah. and shitting and pissing and what you ate and what how your humors were, that all of these things sort of impacted your health. And yeah. um, because they didn't have sanitation or germ theory, you know, they would have these open I mean, latrines and the miasmas. They were 200 years before we even thought about the lobotomy. They were 200 years before we were wrong about sticking picks in people's heads. Think about that. I think about all the things we've gotten wrong in my mother's lifetime about medicine. Thalidomide, ice pick lobotomy. We have fucked up so many things. We're going to keep fucking up too. Don't worry. We're going to do amazing things. We're also going to fuck up everything. What is this generation's lobotomy though? Um, Anti-vaccine probably. But I mean, vaccines are like, that's a medical thing that was good. That's just a parasocial fuck up. I'm sure in 200 years, we'll look back and be like, you guys did chemo? What the fuck was wrong with you? Do you know how many people that fucked up afterwards? Like maybe it fucks up the sperm. Who knows? Yeah, we will have no idea. It'll probably be something around like hysterectomies, I think. I think we're going to find out that those are actually probably a lot more dangerous or... You might have researched this already. Do you know that the research they did on early birth control permanently rendered some women sterile? They used doses like 10 times higher. They didn't know what doses to start with. So the doses, uh, I read an amazing article on this talking about like they were just, and I believe they were using minority women, poor women for test subjects on this. They were just throwing hormones out at random. And like some of the, like it was bad the way that they conducted the original testing on our birth controls, but that was in the you know 60s, 70s. It was a long time before. Now, I, I do wonder what's going to be like the thalidomide, the ice pick lobotomy of our... It's a miracle. No, you're killing people. If you have an idea, write in. Let us know. Info at Two Girls on Mike. I feel like it might also probably have to do something with like antidepressant medication or something like that. I feel like even just what they were prescribing... I just figured out what it's going to be. It's going to be opiates. Yeah. It's going to be OxyContin because we told people OxyContin was not addictive and then prescribed ass loads of it. And it's literally about as strong as heroin. 
Well, there was even how we got heroin, which is like, because originally what they were using was laudanum. The first intravenous drug addict was the wife of the guy that invented the syringe, and he was uh, using it to inject his wife with laudanum. And there's something about the pleasure receptors in the brain. And so when, when they formulated heroin, they're like, well, we took the addictive molecule out. So it has the pain relief factor. What it did was it made something like even more efficient. They just repeated that process with Oxycontin, which is they just were like, no, now we really got the addictive molecule out. Basically, so you have morphine as the base molecule for this. I did my master's thesis on prescription opiate abuse toxicology. Morphine's the base molecule. Uh, the name that we give to heroin is 1,6-diacetylmorphine. So you add two acetyl groups on to basically the same site on the on opposite sides of this thing. And it gives it the polarity to pass through the blood-brain barrier that morphine really doesn't. So you get that extreme high for like a half hour before before it uh, metabolizes into one acetylmorphine and then it metabolizes into morphine and you're on a morphine high for about six hours. And then when that morphine high goes away, you're like, I need that back in my brain. But Oxycontin, same thing. Like it's better passing through the blood brain barrier. It's just, it is a stronger beast. Well, I think what we're going to learn is that I, cause I think the, the biggest push in medical science right now is pain management because so many people are in pain because of capitalism and the work week and all of the other stuff. But I think what we're going to find is that it's not really about the chemical method of removing pain. I think what we're going to find out is that pain, there's like a psychological somatic kind of response going on. There's cases of feral children that had been raised by wolves and they would go out and like play in the snow, buck naked and have like no sense of cold. And what they started to figure out and a theory that's going around is that pain is actually kind of like a learned response to a degree. That's why like the more accustomed you get to things like air conditioning, that responses of extreme cold or heat a lot of times are much more social in nature. And when they've done, you know, these things about people that have chronic pain, they were saying that like, if you don't treat chronic pain, it's like your brain forms new neural pathways and it kind of learns to just always be in pain. I think there's, I think it's going to be something around learning a different way to treat pain. Like not to say pain doesn't exist, but that like perhaps what makes, what amplifies it or makes it as more horrible is actually kind of social shit, psychological stuff. Yeah, someone with a permanent headache on one side of my head. I'm going to go with pain is real and different people have different thresholds and different uh, capacity for handling it. But uh, yeah, there's there are some people who will be able to better handle it. There are some things that can reduce our or increase our tolerance for it. But pain is a, our, our body's way of telling us that something is going wrong. And sometimes you can have a nerve that can be cut or damaged that can tell you something's going wrong when it is not. And that's the thing that happened to me. So I was suicidal suicidal for years because of how bad it was. So yeah, it's not all psychological. No, I mean, I think pain is real, but I think that in terms of when we're looking at pain management, that I think that just throwing medication at it, that I think in the future, we're going to figure out that there's kind of like a triumvirate. There's some kind of like a, that there needs to be kind of like a cluster of therapies as opposed to like just one. The human brain is still so much of a mystery. I feel like it's sort of like the ocean. As much as we know, there's so much that we don't know about. Oh, yeah. We don't still totally understand how anesthesia works and we use it all the time. So <laughs> and we keep people in a state that's kind of half dead to keep them alive. <laughs> and we don't know if people feel pain while they're out. 
I mean, that would be interesting to look at, to look at the brain and see if the brain registers the trauma of something, even if you don't remember it or feel it. But if that, if it still damages the brain, because when we are traumatized, it causes a kind of brain damage in the sense that it does change the way our brain fires. Maybe it'll be anesthesia. Maybe that'll be the thing that that we look back and go, that's what we fucked up. (laughs) There are so many studies that are unethical that I would love to conduct to figure all of this out, but we should review our porn today. (laughs) It means we had fun things to talk about, but we also had, we reviewed a seriously good porn. I was impressed with the parody today. We reviewed the sex files. It was such a trip for me to watch that because I think when I came in, this was the movie that was winning stuff at avian that year yeah i was looking at the cast and i was like oh yeah like i don't i've been in a film with anthony rosano we were not paired together but he was already kind of like not really doing much it was kind of weird to see all these people that i just didn't recognize i'm just not used to that when i watch porn and it just struck me also how much porn has changed when i watched it because now all of it it feels like Everything is really dark and serious. It's all like incest stuff and the pure taboo effect and the girl's way effect that it's kind of, and that this was kind of fun and like it was, it was well done, but there was a kind of a frivolity to it, a whimsy to it. This is why we watch so much stuff from Wood Rocket. That's all like parody. It's like, there's, I don't, have we seen any stepcest in a Wood Rocket parody yet? Not that I've seen. I avoid stepcest as much as I possibly can. Like, it's just, I don't, I don't want to see someone banging their stepsister again. Look, I don't need to know what is a new contraption you can get stuck in, whether it's a washing machine, a dishwasher, a sink, a a mailbox. My hand's stuck in the oven, stepbrother. You know my name is Kyle and the oven is wide open. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) No, I mean, that's part of the reason that I like I haven't really gone back to filming is I just like I got tired of that just being constant. It was kind of depressing, to be honest. It was like, I was like, this isn't what I signed up for. And I think you're seeing that with the whole Porn Me Too movement is on the back channels that aren't fan facing. You know, a lot of us for years have been talking about like, not even just this sucks, but you know, do we have a moral obligation to kind of stop doing this? Because the goalposts just keep getting pushed further and further back. And like, because I think everyone wants to have work that they're like proud of. And it's like really weird to be Mm -hmm. like, don't Google me, not because I don't want you to see me naked, but I I don't want you to see the stuff that I've been in because I don't want you to think that I'm like into that or that I'm a bad person. It's like everyone has to pay their rent. And when nine out of 10 scripts require you to be playing some kind of person that's like abusing people that they're supposed to be taking care of or something. It's like, it just, it wears on you after a while. It's just like, who's watching this stuff? Mm-hmm. So it was just refreshing Someone, to watch obviously. something where everyone was a grown up. No one was playing an underage child, you know, like that was cool. Like, cause that's, that never happens in adult anymore. Yeah. Is it all like, I just turned 18, tee hee. I've seen scripts for stuff where the person's playing like a foster kid. And I'm like, you can't what? be no. 18 and be in the foster Uh, system so that and that's what i mean by like it just keeps getting like 
or seeing people dressed as like cookie girls, they're in Girl Scout outfits. And I'm like, you can't like a Girl Scout, you stop being a Girl Scout around 16 or 17. And even if they're saying on camera, this person's 18, like the thing that they're implying for the viewer is that they're younger. Like it's very nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And I think for me, I was like, after the second time I was handed a script like that, I just walked off set and said, I'll figure it out but I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'll figure out something, but, and I think that's why you're seeing Like I, a lot of my friends I'm talking to on back channels are just, you know, because of only fans and many vids and stuff, they're like, I don't, I'm not going back. I don't want to, you know, one of my other girlfriends that we've had on the show uh, told me she, uh, during lockdown, she's like, yeah, my only fans is printing money right now. I don't think I want to go back to filming until I, I can get out of doing stepsister scenes again. Yeah. There's a lot of us that are just like, just because you can make it doesn't mean you should. And just because people buy it doesn't mean it's right. It's like people are buying it because it's there. Like it's kind of lost the novelty now. Like people bought stuff with with completely shaven bushes for a long time because that's what there was. Now there are bushes. We can get away from the step sibling porn. We can get away from the creepy young porn. Look, porn set directors, there's enough uh, writers that have a bachelor's uh, in English in Starbucks. Just find one. Just one. They will write the best script for porn you've ever seen. And it won't have anything to do with step-siblings, we promise. It's not about a lack of desire. I sit on sets and directors and writers and everyone says, I hate this, I'm so sorry, let's just get this over with as quick as we can and get the fuck out of here. Who I believe it. What? It has to do with the algorithmization of porn and the corporation of porn. Oh, and it has to do with like that porn scripts are being written by, there's like three or four companies that run every website. And they have a group of, of neckbeards that sit there and they look at the algorithms, what people watch, what they stay on longest, what performers they like. And then they make a Frankenstein script, like get this person, this person, and this person, have it set here, have it here, have them in these five positions for this amount of time. It's literally mapped out like that. Directors aren't directors anymore. They are project managers. They're project coordinators. That's all they're doing. You know, they're given a list of like five people they can Spill pick from Jesus. to hire. Spill it. And- like the people creating it want to make really cool, amazing stuff. And they don't want to have every theme have to be someone's being victimized or fucking overwhelmed or coerced, but they aren't the ones that are able to write the scripts. And if they want to keep their job, I mean, it is what it is. Like the Me Too movement that's happening, you're starting to see what I wrote an article about it, that because of the combination of quarantine and George Floyd and OnlyFans, like it was this perfect storm of people feeling that they were stuck at home and so they had to get on their content game and their content game was flourishing and then George Floyd happened and all these protests happened and people started to see that like by grouping together, they were actually starting to make changes happen. And I think it was just a matter of time before. And that's why now in my other industry and in standup, you're again, you're seeing all of these girls suddenly go like, yeah. I'm fucking sick and tired of this shit and I'm not going to do it anymore. So I think... Now, behind the scenes, I know corporations are starting to look at changing stuff because enough big players, like a bunch of performers got together and were like, listen, we have to do this together and it has to be the heavy hitters. But like, we have to start having these conversations about racism and porn, the coercive stuff, sexual assault and harassment on set and this sort of old buddy, like bro culture that has, you know, proliferated in porn for ever because all the directors came in 20 years ago when porn was about, you know, having a fucking 24 hour party 
And now it's a business and girls are coming in, not because they want to party and fuck everybody, but because they're there to make their money and go home and like live their lives. And so they don't want to be constantly coerced or, you know, hit on by these dudes that look like their fucking dad, you know, and these guys are in denial because they think they're still the hot up and coming like 20 something director. They don't realize that when an 18 year old girl walks on set and she looks at you, you look like her parent. Like she doesn't want to fuck you, you know, like it's not fun for her. They're in denial. They don't get that. There's an era of professionalism they never went through because they set the standard. They came in, they created these projects. You have your John Staglianos who come in, they create the genre of gonzo porn and they're hailed as these legendary figures. It's like, okay, cool. You did one good thing, but what you did 20, 30 years ago is now not the same as what you're doing now. That doesn't mean that you could still get away with, you know, touching women on set inappropriately without asking for consent beforehand. You know, that that's what it comes down to. You know, talking about what's allowed and what's not allowed. And frankly, it, it's not okay for these people who've been around for ages to just go around like, you know, it's just the way things have always been done. No, I'm happy that porn has been going through a Me Too movement, frankly. It, it's long overdue. I mean, and there's a shift that's happened that there was a shift happening in technology before it was happening culturally, which... Neil Postman wrote about this a lot in a book called Future Schlock, where he was talking about that there's there's sometimes there's this lag between sort of medical or technological advancements in culture and the culture's ability to catch up. And the truth is, is that for years now, companies have needed the traffic of the performers to get like eyes on the page. So they've been trying to pick girls that have huge followings on Instagram and Twitter because they, they need that traffic to drive traffic to their websites. They need those girls to RT and promo. But at the same time, you know, girls would really suffer from this idea that they needed the companies to like get their name out there. So it's like the advancements hadn't caught up with the culture and the culture was like, that you just got in and everything was about you need to work for these big companies and get these box covers so that people know who you are. When the reality is, is and OnlyFans really proved this, is that the majority of the top earners on OnlyFans are girls that have never stepped foot on a porn set. They're people that had big followings on Twitch, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And then they decided to start, you know, monetizing their nudes and leveraging it for like real capital. And I think girls started seeing that and they're like, wait. Alice is like, when do I open one? <laughs> I would never be able to devote the time to editing video content. That is never going to happen. <laughs> I respect anyone who can go out and put themselves out there. I just, I can't even do the amount of makeup, Jesus. I mean, I respect you for just putting on the makeup alone. Fuck. Like, I try watching a YouTube video and I'm like, I, I can't do this like 30 seconds in. Yeah. I give up. I mean, but the thing is, is the other thing that a lot of us learned on OnlyFans is that the fans don't even want that stuff. They just want you. They want to talk to you. They want candid yeah. stuff. They want whatever. So a lot of us are sitting at home going, I'm working half as hard. I get to be myself instead of some weird fucking brand. I don't have to put on appearances. I don't have to be in this agent provocateur lingerie and talking about how like I'm a sex goddess. I can literally be just out getting a Starbucks and then in my car and then I'll something in my shower or I might do like a strip tease and then I'll sit in messages and just talk to you and like I'll post pictures of me without makeup and they love it. They don't care. I go live while I'm like giving my dog a bath and just talk and they're, they're like, that's, they're paying for 
and enjoying like the intimacy and getting to know you and get to feel close to you, you know, and that that's kind of the consumer has changed. You know, the modern consumer wants to know that their porn is sort of ethically sourced. They want to feel sure that the person is having a good time. If you can make the path between money and the girl or the content creator as short as possible, that's what the consumer wants, whether it's Patreon. Like I have a Patreon. I, I'm making money on my Patreon because I have a poetry project right now, 100 Poems in Solitude, where I'm writing like a poem a night, a different form every night. And I give myself two hours to do it. And I do like a reading and I do the poem. And I have a bunch of subscribers for that and for the podcast. And they, because they want to give the money directly, you know? And so a friend was like, are you going to, what are you going to do when you're done with the poems? I'm like, oh, I'm going to self-publish them and sell them on Big Cartel because why do I give a shit about going through a publisher? Like, I don't care whether or not you can buy my books in a bookstore. Like, you can order them online. I'm going to actually make more money and see more money by directly marketing to my fans. And I think a lot of creators are still trying to catch up to that model because they're still caught up in the old societal model created by gatekeepers that says there's some level of prestige by having this or that you know, and that's just not true anymore. And it's the same thing with girls that used to want to be contract girls or on the box cover. I'm like, that's, that's old school. That's, that's the old way. Like we're not doing that anymore. That doesn't mean anything anymore. You can have all the box covers you want. It doesn't mean anything. So speaking of box cover, let's get back to this porn. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) So as you mentioned before, you know, this was back in 2009 and you're right. It did win some awards, uh, Avian Award winner for Best Actress Kimberly Kane and 2010 Avian Award winner for Best Parody. It was a tie. I don't know what it tied with, but it, okay. So I grew up on the X-Files, probably, but I love this film. I felt like it had not only the look and feel of an X-Files film, but it just, it flowed right. Yeah, it captured the right kind of chemistry uh, between Scully and Mulder. It kept their name. Like, I was surprised that they kept their names as just Scully and Mulder. Like, that one could have gone either way. It had the good feel of a paranormal. Like, they fleshed out that paranormal activity into something sexual very well. Like, this worked as a porno and an X-Files episode. Yeah, it really did. And I I thought it was really charming that they actually found something that would absolutely be an X-File. Like, I think it's the real Lilith, you know? They picked, instead of being like, it's aliens fucking us, they made it like a creature of the week kind of episode instead of a conspiracy episode. Yeah, like, I was actually curious how this thing was going to work out instead of just being like, oh, it's probes. Right. Like... But they did manage to get anal into the first scene. I love that it was their boss and like we're watching kind of dirty old man. Like I love that we're watching kind of paunchy older guy banging the secretary. Like and that was the first sex scene. I was like diversity in body types. That's what I want in porn. I want dad bod. I've never watched a feature all the way through before. So I was like, oh, these are horrible. Um Because the sex has no, like, you just see where it's like, oh, yeah, this is like, you know. This is where we're doing this position. Yeah. Now we're doing this. I kind of didn't like that that he popped in her mouth with the Scully Mulder thing. I was like, that would have been a cream pie. What? Right. They love each other. He would have come inside. It's just like that. That kind of took me out of it. I was like, that's not in character. 
Thankfully, that was at the very end. But uh, so just to recap really quick, if you've never watched The X-Files, so I would like to describe it as the anti-Scooby-Doo, because in Scooby-Doo, you always find that there's a real person at the end of some sort of mythological idea of it might be a ghost. It might be the boogeyman. It's like, no, it's Mr. Jenkins. And this, it's like it's an old man trying to blame the the millennials. That's what it always is. Whereas in the X-Files, it's like, no, we thought it was the old man, but it's actually some sort of supernatural entity. With X-Files, the entire plot is really around special agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully. Mulder is a talented profiler and a huge believer in the supernatural. Scully, she is the STEM figure. And frankly, at the time, she was the only female STEM figure on TV. You know, you didn't have bones. You didn't have uh, really anyone else who was this prominent female scientist in the 90s on television who was like a Dana Scully. I think you had ER had some characters because that was I feel like that was the time of the medical drama, which kind of makes sense that they made her a doctor because it was sort of like there was the two big things were medical procedurals and police procedurals. And X-Files kind of hit that sweet spot of kind of combining the police procedural with the medical procedural and then adding the sci-fi element, which always has kind of the cult following. I stand corrected. Never forget, we had Mrs. Frizzle and the Magic School Bus. (laughs) So, hey, where do you think I got most of my wardrobe idea from? I have a collection of science dresses and a jacket with the periodic table on it. So the an X-File was essentially a case that was deemed unsolvable or given minimal priority status by the FBI. And they were transferred to this division because they were more or less unexplained phenomenon, uh, fringe pseudoscientific theories. The X-Files, it was huge. I mean, we were talking about at this point, it's now because they've rebooted it, 11 seasons, I think two films at this point. I mean, it was also crazy that they even had action figures of this TV show because, you know, you didn't have like action figures of like characters from Frasier. What kid would play with those? That would be the weirdest (laughs) kid ever that would play with the action figures from that would be, you know, who would play with that young Sheldon. It coincided, I think, too, with the dot com boom and the rise of the Internet in everyone's homes. It was also coinciding with this kind of this moment, the beginning of the information age. Where people um, people were going on chat rooms and message boards and suddenly they were having access to this kind of stuff. And that's where you first started to see a lot of these sort of, which is reflected in um, the lone gunman characters in in the show, kind of represented this sort of countercultural moment that was going on. You had movies like Hackers. You know, where it's like um, the older generation was trying to make sense of this new generation that was like really tech savvy and kind of um, on the cutting edge. And they seem to live in a completely different world because they were able to hack into things and leak big information. And you had like white hat ta- like hackers going in and doing this kind of, you know, the first version of anonymous going on. And so I think it also it coincided with this sort of shift in the culture where there was this idea that there were like top secret files and things that could be leaked and now people could access them. And there was this internet cyberspace where there was all this information stored and like you could somehow get to secret information in the banks and in government and all this kind of stuff. So I think it also kind of hit at a cultural moment when people kind of didn't know what sort of world they were going into, but it kept getting revealed to people through 
the internet that they didn't have the full story, you know, cause that was also Monica Lewinsky and the Drudge Report and this idea of news shifting from the TV to computers and this idea that information was traveling in these secret little bodies. So there was like a lot going on culturally that I think made the show just hit really hard. I think like the appeal mm. of it was this kind of, this idea that the whole world had been discovered and there was also this desire to feel like the world was still mysterious because it felt like it had kind of been conquered also. So the monster of the week kind of it appealed to people's desires to retreat into a time when everything wasn't kind of discovered and determined and known. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm uh, like, I think House of Cards is our show of that day because it just corresponds with every nutty, horrible thing that's happening on the planet at the exact time. Oh, you think it's going to be this bad this week? We're going to make it worse. And then reality is worse than that. Yeah. Whereas the writers of 2020, they can't commit to a plot line. I mean, we started with impeachments. Now we're at murder hornets. Uh, who knows where it's going to go? Sodomy geese. I'm waiting for the sodomy geese. I mean, can you imagine if 20 years ago, the government said, yeah, those are UFOs? I mean, people would have lost their minds. It happened this year and no one even fucking noticed. They dropped that knowledge and they're like, yeah, six months from now, like when they announce that there's a vaccine and people are like, OK, we have time to go to like sift through the news from the last year. Someone's going to be like, wait, aliens, aliens. So I'm a talking head on a show on the Weather Channel called Weird Earth. And you better fucking believe that's going to be some of the footage we go over next season. I hope we get a vaccine that soon. There are five companies that are already in phase two trials. I believe they did. Phase one is very small. is like 30 people. Phase two is like 600. Phase three is three to 10,000. And they're trying to like bust through phase two really quickly. And here's the thing. More than likely, we're going to have multiple vaccines for this. And when I say like, I think it's it's three to five companies that are moving ahead fairly quickly on it. And we're going to have more than one. And these are the companies that are that are already starting to pump money into manufacturing these vaccines so that on day one, when they have approval, they will have supply ready to go. But they're also just going to take the financial loss if the vaccine isn't approved. And they're like, we're about 80% sure this is going to work. But you know that 20%, this is too important not to rush. If it gets approved and people are like, I don't believe it because it was rushed. I'll be like, I will be the first one to offer my arm for that injection. If it gets approved, I, I will take it. How long do you think it will take? I think minimum. And I like, if nothing goes wrong, nothing whatsoever, it might be available. Again, nothing goes wrong. The earliest will be spring. I will be surprised if it's that early. It could also take four years. I'll also be surprised if it takes that long. But like, I think just given how many companies are going at this, like a rabid pit bull on, on a pork chop, I, I think that we're going to see something available under two years. But again, could be wrong. Nobody knows. Like the scariest thing that could happen, and we're already seeing some mutations that are changing its contagiousness level slightly. Don't get nervous. But like the worst thing that could happen is this could mutate in a significant way that makes researchers have to change the way that they're working on a vaccine. That's the scariest thing that could happen in all this. Or it could uh, mutate in a way that makes it more deadly. And that's what made the second wave of the Spanish flu much more intense, much more uh, fatal. 
you know, it was bad in the spring, but then the second wave of a, of a mutated strain uh, showed up. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Uh, let's keep right now. Things are in states that opened up prematurely. Things are bad. Please keep socially distancing as much as is feasible and wearing your masks. If you want to visit friends if, and go to a restaurant, please go to an outdoor dining facility and sit six feet away from each other on your at your tables if possible. Get a round table, sit on the opposite sides. Don't be dumb. My mom's a nurse and she was in the COVID ward and she was like, they're cycling people out like every two weeks just because they're getting PTSD. Like the healthcare workers, they're like, they're stuck floating them around because they're, it's like, it's too stressful. You know what I mean? Like, she, like she's a NICU nurse and they floated her in for like a week and she was like, get me the fuck out of here. Like I can't, just the chaos of it and the the death and the, She's like, they've got everyone on ventilators and, you know, where, where it likes to get real, it likes a nice, moist, warm thing. You know, you gotta, when you intubate people, you gotta do a lot of lubricating of their throat to get that in there. So you're creating an environment where it's actually easier for it to grow. And then you have to, you know, as she's like, it's just, there's so many things where if like one person misses a step, it can be fatal to the next person. And extubating, taking it out if you're either, if they're, when they're getting better or if you need to do another procedure to them, when you extubate, it just spews uh, coronavirus out into the air. It's a very uh, high risk procedure uh, when you're working with ventilators. So like it had to have been scary uh, just to work in there and just like pray every day that it's not her day to be in contact with it. Yeah. So speaking of dead bodies, <laughs> we have a couple people who are murdered. <laughs> so getting back to the porn, uh, you have several men who are murdered and their bodies are defiled with occult symbols and Mulder and Scully are on the case. So where should we begin, ladies? I mean, yeah, we have the opening scene where Skinner gets nailed. I thought it was interesting as a porn performer when I was watching this. It was really interesting because today they wouldn't be able to make this because really? of blood and violence stuff because the corporatization of porn, it's okay to fuck your stepchildren now, but you can't choke <gasps> someone or, I mean, like for real, Dana Vespoli is my best friend and she likes to work in the horror porn genre. Like that's kind of her milieu and what she likes to do. And she made some really amazing movies for evil angel when she was directing there. If you get a chance to check them out, just, any Dana Vespoli movie out of Evil Angel that is like a feature, really fucking solid, strong stuff. And there was blood and murder. And But when she was working for Sweetheart and other places and what's happened over the last, say, five years, is there's so much stuff around CC Bill and violence and whatever that any kind of blood, like you can't see any kind of, like any kind of violence associated with anything can't be in a porno. So it was weird watching it. So I was like, Oh, this could, they couldn't make this today because that made me realize something. We watched uh, the walking dead parody porn. And in order to kill the zombies, you had to, they had to swallow your cum. So (laughs) maybe that's why they use that for a plot device. It wouldn't surprise me. And and it was interesting because I was watching, I was like, this is kind of amazing that there's a porno and you're also watching an autopsy. Yeah, there was an absolute autopsy scene later on of Evan Stone. Yeah. She reached in and took Evan Stone's heart. Not the first time. You know, there's really something about kind of sex and death. I mean, I think it's part of the reason that we like horror. And especially when we're teenagers is that horror is the kind of porn we're allowed to watch it performs the same function. You know what I mean? It's like, it elevates your heart rate. 
it tugs at something, it gets your adrenaline going and it tugs at something really kind of primitive and essential in our nature, you know, like, so the fear of death and the desire to live and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, when you look at old posters for horror movies from the seventies and eighties, you know, there's always like, like a half naked woman. And then there's like some kind of menace going on The the horror genre is, is hella sexual. How many couples have sex and it leads to death? All of them, 100%. Don't have sex in horror movies. You'll never die. Be stayed the virgin. I was just watching a documentary called Scream Queen that was talking about uh, Mark Patton, who was the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which basically kind of ruined his career. There are these certain tropes in horror, right? So you have the final girl, and the final girl is sort of the virginal girl that makes it to the end, to the final level boss. And that in Nightmare on Street 2, they did it as like a possession horror, kind of the horror of being possessed by evil. And so Mark Patton is the lead and he's like a scream queen, but he's a boy. And so he screams a lot. There's a lot of homoerotic kind of undertones throughout the entire thing. And at the time, everyone was like, this is really gay. And Mark Patton made it gay because he just can't play straight. And all this kind of stuff. And the screenwriter uh, wouldn't admit that he had written in all of this homoerotic context. And the documentary was sort of like, as we've grown as a culture, it, that has become the favorite Nightmare on the Street movie because it has these homoerotic things. And people started looking back in it and going, oh, this is so much about like being queer. It's like the nightmare of finding out you're gay, you know, and that this monster inside you. I, I now want to see the Lindsay Ellis analysis of this on YouTube. <laughs> Who's that? She's my. I have like a list of favorite YouTubers, but she does these long form film analysis. She did a three part analysis of The Hobbit in which she went to New Zealand to talk about the fuckery that went on with the tourism in New Zealand from the filming there. She started by calling The Hobbit, you know, part one and two. And at the end of part two, she's like, there's actually a part three to make fun of the fact that they made three parts of a movie that did not need three parts. But it was I think she uh, she was nominated for a shorty award for it. Like it was that good of the like she went to film school and like now this is what she does and she also just coming out with a, a new young adult uh book anyways she's a great youtuber uh does great film analysis yeah i love there's a couple um i forget what it's like, called some like quentin rates is something i really enjoy he did this breakdown of baby nut that commercial and he does this complete breakdown of like the racist origins of Mr. Peanut and colonialism and break. It is like the most, I, have to see this. I was like, I did not think 2020 would be the year that a YouTuber explaining the history of Mr. Peanut would also simultaneously explain the history of colonialism, capitalism and empire to a new generation. But here we are. <laughs> Via baby nut. How did you guys feel about the sex scenes in the X-Files in terms of just the way they were executed and like the kind of sex? Like, do you think it fit it's, with? We often skip the sex scenes when we review these, but like I started watching the one with Evan Stone and like, here's the thing. I'll watch Evan Stone fuck a fucking cantaloupe. I enjoy his style, but like, as I usually do, I skipped most of the sex scenes. I watched for the plot. Uh, what I liked about the sex scenes in the X-Files is I felt like, Aside from the Skinner one, a lot of them felt natural, like they were supposed to be there. Like in the beginning, you had the opening scene where uh, Lilith, because she is the antagonist in this film, Lilith, like Adam and Eve, Lilith, we'll get to this in a second, the mythology portion of it, screwing a guy in the beginning. 
great opening scene, then she kills him. She lunges at his neck and starts tearing him apart. You have another sex scene where Mulder is in his hotel room after getting on a case, seeing, you know, the bodies, and he's just chilling in his hotel room, throwing on the pay-per-view. Totally natural. I felt like that was a great segue. Another great segue was with Evan Stone, you know, wanting to do a threesome and him being with his partner, the next victims. I felt it wasn't forced, whereas a a lot of the sex scenes we find in a lot of these films are kind of shoved in. It felt better paced. With the long form porns, they always have to have a lesbian scene. I like that they fit it in with the way they did with uh, Mulder watching it. Like that worked for me. It was a running theme through the show that Mulder watches a lot of fucking porn and he likes girl girl porn. <laughs> so that's like there was like constantly these sort nice. of subtexted jokes nice. throughout the original series. That because it was like, yeah, of course, this is a guy that is lonely. So so you as an X-Files fan, you approve of this execution. I was like, of course, that's what Mulder's doing because they were constantly cutting to like, it was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink that Mulder had just been watching porn. And he there are several times in the show where he would sort of make allusions to watching porn, you know, and that it was kind of like, this is like the single bachelor lifestyle is this guy that like solves these mysteries and like watches porn because he can't connect with other people but then he likes girl girl porn <laughs> i mean like to quote uh the the british show coupling well you don't want any accidental eye slippage <laughs> what i also appreciated is his in-depth knowledge of uh not only mythology but of sex magic so let's talk about that for a second sex because first magic. off I really appreciated the actual mythology that they had within this porn because right? it was fairly accurate. Yeah, um, I was surprised. So the story, if you're not too familiar with Adam and Eve in the Bible, uh, is that hypothetically Lilith was his uh, first wife, but because she was unwilling to submit to Adam, she left Eden. And in the porn, we had a nice little twist where she wouldn't submit to missionary. <laughs> I've heard that many times though in the telling the story that like like when really? I was first told the story of Lilith God when I was a teenager I was dating a, it was like a philosophy studies major and he's like oh yeah she got kicked out of the garden because she wanted to be on top <laughs> that's in there that's a first semester philosophy major for you yeah but uh, God sends three angels to get back Lilith, but fails. And it's all correct, actually, in this porn. Uh, you have Sinsnoli Semagnolif. I'm totally butchering the names, to retrieve them. And he's unable, uh, they're all unable to get her. And of course, Lilith, uh, she's kind of known to do a number of different things. Everything from, she's kind of like the creator of SIDS. So uh, she steals. I'm not wrong. She steals children's lives in a night. Yeah. The specter over the crib, kind of. But she's agreed not to kill the children who have the amulets of the names of any of the three angels. And in this porn, how they integrated is they have this one character, Andrew, who wears a pendant with the names of the three angels in Hebrew. That's the other part of it I thought was charming was that instead of making it silly, they made it like erotic. And he, I mean, you when you're making a graphic porn, you can't be too erotic because once you're depicting graphic sex, there's something that kind of like removes nuance or like, I thought they did a good job of building to by the end of like the final sex scene with Scully and Mulder. Like I was kind of like ready for it, like excited for it. And I was like, oh, that like they did a good job of like being able to carry a reasonable amount of sexual tension for me, even despite the format. They can't do major 
great special effects and they are limited really in the amount of storytelling they can do. And they are limited by the acting ability of the people that they hired that day, you know, and they're limited by the kinds of shots they have to get. Whereas if you look at like a Catherine Briott movie where there is graphic sex, but it's still shot cinematically, there's not a huge concern about getting penetration or getting certain positions or making sure it's a certain amount of time, which enables the tension and the eroticism of the sex to be maintained. Whereas once you're like hit the sex, there's always just a tonal shift of, okay, let's get them in these positions. It's lit bright and wide. Like there's always a tonal shift. It's like almost impossible to maintain tone in a porno, even if you can like stay in character. And I thought it was really interesting watching the scenes because how are these people going to talk to each other? Are they going to be able to stay in character? Because as a porn performer, it can be really difficult if your scene partner isn't staying in character with you. And so I was like, how is Gully going to get fucked? Like, what is she going to, like, what is Dana Scully going to say while she's getting fucked? Is she going to say shit Kimberly (laughs) Kane would say? Or, you know what I mean? Like, there's always that moment where it's like, are they going to be able to stay in character and say shit that their characters would say? This is why we always, we will trumpet it to the end of time. We we love watching Tommy Pistol or Evan Stone because they say the fucking character when they are banging. I thought Anthony Rosano and Kimberly Kane did an awesome job in this. I mean, the fact oh, even yeah. that Kimberly Kane looked so much like Scully right. was just awesome. But quick tangent. Uh, so you were mentioning about how much that they can show and can't show. Um, so I started going, of course, down a rabbit hole of sex magic, as I should. <laughs> but I was. Uh, it was interesting how they presented it in this film because they did it in a very occult way of like carving stuff onto the guy and chants and or witchcraft, whereas... I started going down the rabbit hole of, well, what can be classified as sex magic? And there are people where, and I can't make this up, where there's, first off, sex magic is kind of all over the place because there's so many different types of forms. But there's people who will integrate their orgasms or period blood into food. So I found this one recipe where a woman was suggesting utilizing her period blood in the spaghetti sauce. And I'm pretty sure that's not grandma's recipe. Um, That's actually very, very common. That goes back as far as time, but there's always been an understanding that that semen and blood and spit are all very powerful things. And and in a lot of ways, they're kind of just very diluted versions of each other. You know, spit is just clear blood at the end of the day. But in a lot of ways, like you see old spells, like midwife manual stuff, you know, take some of your period blood, put it on like a piece of fabric and then like tuck it under your breast or something. And like the smell of it will it will make you more attractive to men. Yeah, blood rituals are nothing new. No, I mean, there's always, I mean, everything is driven by sex. And so the oldest spells were fucking love spells. I mean, that's like as old as time, love spells and fertility spells. I mean, that's what drives everything is having that. And because they used to view women as having sort of the secret to childbirth, it was natural that like it was kind of upon them to, it was this belief that they just understood the mysteries of all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And like- Um, incorporating blood and semen and all of that stuff. That's always been there. (laughs) 
What I didn't know is that Aleister Crowley was so into uh, sex witchcraft that he wrote nine books on sex magic. And not only that, but... I was unaware that he was this big deal. <laughs> well, not only that, but he was so hated that they actually dubbed him not only the wickedest man in the world by the English press, the British weekly John Bull, they titled a piece back in 1923 called The Man We'd Like to Hang. <laughs> Well, don't hold back on your your thoughts on him, please. Jesus. I also found this weird conspiracy theory that Aleister Crowley had a mistress and the child was Barbara Bush. And, you know, therefore he is the grandfather of George Bush. (laughs) There's no evidence to that. And especially since apparently he kept detailed records of all his sexual partners, you know, uh, binders full of women, just a good Mitt Romney guy. Have you noticed, like, even with, like, the Chris thing, right, where it was, like, he somehow was keeping track of, like, which fans were in which city so that when he got there, right? And I've noticed a theme with sex addicts or what, I don't really believe in sex addiction, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. They're amazing. They can keep, like, immaculate records. Because I'm just imagining Chris like, opening up a fucking spreadsheet. I'm <laughs> um, going through uh, North Dakota. Like, who on Twitter? And, like, I just imagine him, like, clicking a button and a spreadsheet coming up with the Snapchat handles of, like, every girl he'd ever talked to or seen on Instagram <laughs> that was, like, in South Dakota. And, like, that sending that, like, you up? How are we going to make out? Like, just imagining him setting that, it's... It's really funny that guys that are really into the sex stuff, they keep very detailed records. Um, there was the other guy that, that had like, the sex hotel. They made a documentary about him, but he like cut a hole in the ceiling of one of the rooms and would just go up there and watch and like kept like these just immaculate records of like every single thing that he saw. And they ended up making a documentary because at one point he claimed that he witnessed a murder. Holy shit. And he didn't report it because he would have to report that he was doing this or whatever and there's been a lot of controversy around whether or not they can like find they have some idea that maybe it might have been this murder or that murder but basically kind of like a like it wasn't a sex murder but it was just you know like a couple and one was dealing drugs and couldn't find the money and thought the girl had hidden the money and they got in a fight and like he ended up strangling the girl and running or something like well thank god it wasn't a sex murder (laughs) you know frankly no one was taken aback by crystalia because i think what it came down to was he kept referring to his partners as his partner in crime. It's like, dude, we get it. They're underage. Uh, but um, I did like a Twitter thread about this where, I mean, it's ironic that he's been brought down by kind of a non-crime. I don't think he was deliberately targeting minors because every time the girl mentions her age or something, like it stops. I think it was just reckless. But the bigger crime, I think, is... It's like one thing if a fan seeks you out for sex. I mean, humans are going to human. Yeah. But if you're just trying to pass the time between like the void between the gig and sleep. And so you just start randomly messaging your fans looking for someone that you're going to use and then throw away the next day. Like you're trash. Like that's a trash thing to do because those are your people. Like, those are the people that gave you a career. You're abusing the power that you have as someone who... I mean, if they come to you and they're like, I want to fuck you so bad, have at it. But, like, to go looking and trawling. Because, like, you see, like, in all these, like, he essentially got shut down because the girls were like, oh, okay, like, I'm not... I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? And it's like, it was more just like that, you know, putting people in a position, if you know people idolize you 
and whether it's explicit or implicit, that in order to interact with you and engage with you, they have to be sexual with you. I think it's a shitty position to put someone in. You know what I mean? Like, Especially when they were that age. Like, I'm not sure, were any of them underage? I didn't look into this too carefully. I know- Like, he never met up with them or exchanged images with them. It's sort of like he would, but he just like came out the gate. Like, he would message them and start just immediately taking it to the sexual place. And a lot of times these girls would kind of go along with it because they were like, wanted to meet their favorite comedian. That Chris Delia is anyone's favorite comedian is just funny to me. I think that's embarrassing. I mean, no one should admit that. Like, I want those girls to understand they did nothing wrong except have bad taste in comedians. And and here's the thing is he got shut down. Like all of them were girls basically trying to, they're like, I'm like 16. And then they were just like, and then immediately like they're blocked. I was like, that's so shitty that it's like, even though you're my fan, I'm not going to engage with you or anything unless you will be sexual with me. That's such trash because these people buy your tickets. They fucking give you a career. And what you're you're essentially saying, they're only worth is sex. So it's like they're building your value and you're just tearing theirs down. There is a clip of him, actually, I saw circulating on Reddit for a half a second where someone explained to him that Snapchat photos were not just temporary. And you could see the three second pause in his face of the, oh, shit. Yeah. People can take pictures of those pictures. Or if you, or if you don't want it to say that, that it was screenshotted, you can turn on screen record. And then the other person won't see that you've saved. Because like, if you screenshot or save, like it'll send a message to the person saying, so-and-so just oh, screenshotted yeah. this. But if you turn on like screen recording on your iPhone and open up the app and fuck around, they're not being told anything. Screen record is great. I don't know how to use it. So you guys will message me after the show. I'll send you the link to the app. To me, it's more like the principle of treating your fan base that way. It's like go on Tinder where someone is going to want to hook up with you because of mutual attraction or go hire a sex worker where it's going to be an even exchange because you're going to give her money. The question is, did he want those girls because they looked young or because they were young? Because you can find a young looking 20 something year old that's a little more age appropriate if that's who you're attracted to physically. But like, it's also really fucking creepy that they were 16. That's why I say I think he was just reckless because I feel like clearly he has like some sex addiction issues because spreadsheets. I mean, come on. Like he's keeping track of who's where and who he's had contact with. This girl's like three years later, he's like, remembers that I live here and is messaging me. Right. I think that he probably was reckless and likes younger looking girls. But if 20 came forward out of, let's say 2000 fucking girls, he hits up. Those are just normal odds that you're going to like not know. I think that he probably likes young looking girls. I don't think he was like, I'm going to get me a minor. I think it was just... He wasn't Epsteining it. Yeah, no, I think it was just like, just random chance. If you like girls that look 18 to 20, you know, and you're hitting up girls like three times a day, like just constantly on the prowl for the next conquest, getting 20 girls out of 2000 over a five-year period to me is like completely reasonable that like those would be accidents. Like it just like... Because like I said, in every exchange, when the girl would say like, I'm this old, he would like stop the correspondence. So I don't think it was about him trying to deliberately like, but maybe it was, I don't want to excuse him either. It may very well be that, that he cut it off because they said something and he was just hoping that they, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there was one exchange where he was, he was talking to a girl and he said, I'm, you know, I'm in town. Can we meet up or can we hang out? And he asked specifically, can we make out? Which just seems like a thing that you ask a younger person knowing that they're that much younger. 
It was weird to see a text in which he explicitly asked, can we make out? He did that to everybody. That's- like every girl in porn has like had an encounter with him. Not necessarily has fucked him, but like I met him. I never slept with him. Yeah. But when he slid into my DMs, he used the same kind of language. Really? Yeah. Wow. So that's just like the way he talks because part of his persona is that like he's kind of this like Peter Pan kind of silly boy in like even though he's like a a grown-ass man that's kind of part of his that's like just part of his sort of persona i'm silly and gangly and i've i don't drink or do anything i just work out a lot and i'm silly comedian guy and i think women are dumb and i call my fans babies and like you know what i mean it's like yeah i get it what self-hating woman has fucked him i guess what it comes down to is when you move to la to you know learn how to access a city sex offender list there's megan's law the cbi registry and the wall of the comedy store (laughs) i like well it's turning out it's not wrong because then all this jeff ross stuff coming out and and there's going to be more right who was it that was on the the podcast with rogan that said they had 20 girls blow them Joey Diaz. on stage. I'm like, why would you say that with a microphone in front of your face? I think he was making a joke because that's just how Joey is. I've met and interacted with Joey. Like his reputation is not that. I mean, and there's a whisper network. Do you know what I mean? Like gotcha. we all know who to fucking not talk to or be alone with. We all know. And he's not one of those people. I think he was like you making always- a bad joke. And what sucked is that everyone laughed at it. And I think what was getting all these female comics pissed off was like, what sucks is that that was even a joke. Yeah. You know, like it's not whether or not you were doing it. It's more just like, that's what you think of us and that everyone's I laughing with I joked about you. withholding work for blowjobs. Like, oh. Yeah. We don't get to joke about withholding, you know, a spot on stage for cunnilingus. Like that's not a thing that happens. The joke doesn't happen because everyone knows that's not a thing that would ever happen. They get to make that joke because people know that that's a power structure that exists. Right. And that's the comedians so, were like, we're like, thanks for having like zero empathy for us. Like as coworkers, you should be like, that's fucking terrible that our peers like have to deal with that as like an extra layer of the job, you know? And I think that's why all the outcry has been on Twitter is that all of us are just going, why are none of our male coworkers saying anything? Because some of them are trying to do it. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? It's like, um, I'm kind of surprised the Jeff Ross stuff hasn't hit the media. Like, Right? I had not heard about the Jeff Ross stuff. At, maybe it's because I took two days and just play, uh, binged Skyrim nonstop for the last two days. I'm developing a video game addiction. He supposedly, when he was like 30, dated a 15-year-old and she Woof. posted a ton of evidence. Whoa. She did like a series of Facebook videos. Photo Ooh. evidence. Tickets for like comedy stuff pictures of her at work, like like all of these things that basically say that when she was 15 and she was interning for his uh, agent or this comedy club, she came into contact with him. They started a relationship and like her dad was all about it because he was like, my daughter's dating a famous comic. And like, so it's like the, like she was failed by so many people like along the way. Do people even understand how young 15 is? No. You don't have rights to shit. You can't even have a learner's permit yet in most states. My God. Exactly. And so like that's, it's come out and like that came out in October on Facebook and there were like 20 likes on the post. And then a comic Pallavi, she found it and she put on Twitter. She was like, I don't know why no one is talking about this, but this girl has so much evidence. It's fucking crazy. And so she put on Twitter and it's slowly been blowing up. And like, now it's going to blow up. Like Perez Hilton finally did a thing. But I've been wondering, like, why 
like within two days, there was like a People magazine and this, this and that about Crystalia. And there's been nothing about the Jeff Ross accusations. And like I said, like the Crystalia thing is kind of much ado about nothing because he never met up with or exchanged. He never fucked a minor. He never exchanged news with the minor. At least none of the girls that, that came forward. That we're aware of. Yeah. There's to point out one thing. Attempted murder is a crime. I'm not saying he attempted to rape anyone, but he attempted to get into the pants of some 16-year-olds. Yes, so, yeah, but there's arguable like, about whether or not he was aware that they were underage, is what I'm saying. I wouldn't leave him unattended with my 16-year-old cousins outside of New- the state of New Hampshire where it's legal. Right. Which is still so weird. But with the Jeff Ross thing, actually, I'm, like, I'm like, we're talking about like a, like a well-documented, like, crime 15 and 30 and no one's saying anything and i'm like and this is like because he's the roast master and no one's talking about it oh my god the roast master what will we do with oh my there are no other comedians that could possibly make mean jokes that a team of people write it's just been wild and like there's been <laughs> um, so much talk behind the scenes about that like this was something that was known about him and this might have been a pattern of behavior and i think a lot of female comedians again stuck at home and everyone's because comedy is one of those things where most of the comedians I know, aside from like the really famous ones that have like already made it, are freaking the fuck out because our livelihood is literally live gigs. Yeah. You know, and like clubs are not opening anytime soon. And there was a whole thing with the DL Hughley where he passed out and like had yeah. COVID and nobody at the comedy club is wearing masks. Nobody at the club is wearing masks, right? So it's like, oh. it's like, we're all looking at our livelihood just like, I mean, I'm lucky I have OnlyFans, right? But if I didn't, so all these comedians are already kind of in a state of like existential crisis. More than normally, correct. They're all realizing that they may not get back on stage for like another year, which is how they make their money. And so they've all been forced to do things like OnlyFans, except like they've gotten writing gigs. They've started their podcasts. They've started their YouTube channels. Like they're starting to get their Patreon going. They're figuring yep. it the fuck out, right? And I think, again, that's the reason why suddenly everyone feels empowered to say something because everyone's like, oh, Jeff Ross might, if I say something that might fuck with me, like, I'm not going to do stand-up for the next fucking year. So what the fuck is he going to keep from me? You know, it's, I think people are also in that state of just like, I'm not even going to interact with these people for at least a year. Fuck it. Why not? And a lot of people are starting to re-envision like what it would look like. And like, I've had a friend that I was like, I'm not even going to try to get past at the comedy store anymore. I don't ever want to go there again. I don't need the club system I can just work on my one woman show, rent out my own theater and sell my own fucking tickets and promote it myself using like my name and my following that I have online. Like I didn't need those people, but I felt like maybe I needed the validation of being passed at a club. I mean, I'm passed at other clubs, but like that was the one. And it was the one all the, the people wanted to get in because they knew it was so hostile to women. So it was like a badge of honor. And I think a lot of people are going like, let's rethink that, you know, because that's the thing that a lot of us do. It's like, like we want to be tough enough. Yeah. Like I want to get past it that one because that one's like the most hostile to women. So like I want to prove that like I can fucking make it there. And I think a lot of comics have been sitting at home going, I'm tired of sitting in green rooms, listening to really sexist, misogynistic fucking stuff and having to act like it doesn't bother me. I'm tired of having to work twice as hard to get half as many bookings. I'm tired of not being res- like, I think a lot of people are just sitting at home going like, I'm tired of doing this as a, a condition of employment. And fuck it, like, let's burn it to the ground because I might not ever come back anyway. So I think a lot of it, too, is like (laughs) 
setting fire to the ship because you know like you're fucking we don't, doomed. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what it's going to look like in a year when clubs are open at more than a ten people and they're getting coughed on by DL Hewley uh, rate. So you know, may as well let all the dirt out now. One thing actually I want to bring up, I found an app and Sovereign, you might be familiar with this one. Have you heard of Mr. Number? No. Oh, okay. So um, a sex worker friend showed it to me the other day and I've been kind of addicted. You could get seven days free and then they'll start charging like $3 a week to use it or whatever the charge is uh, for Apple subscriptions. Essentially, you take any phone number and you plug it in there. And what you could do is then it shows you the name of the contact and then you could go in and you'll see if they have any notes on the person. Now, 99% of my contacts, when I stuck in a contact name and number, were pretty much, okay, well, this person's name, their town, and nothing else. I got some people who I knew what their stage name was, and I was like, oh, well, here's their real name. But then there were, I want to say, at least one or two contacts that you're actually able, if you're a sex worker, to write notes of what they're into, how they treat you, et cetera. Because what people will do is there's a function where you can report spam. And instead of just reporting spam, what that does is you can write a note to that person. So not only can you write things like, hey, they're a telemarketer, you can say, hey, he likes bareback. Okay. And people have been doing that. So I, of course, diligently downloaded and started inputting the names and numbers of all of my exes and ex-coworkers and bosses. And I did find one or two contacts that were fairly interesting. Like what? Oh, my God. What kind of notes? There was this one guy where I'm like, "Mm, he's sketchy. I would be willing to put my money down that he cheated on his girlfriend. So not only did he cheat on his girlfriend, there were multiple, at least eight different sex workers who commented on like the different things he liked and how we treated them. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, my. There was another one where it was a former boss. Oh, I'm going on this app. What's the name of the app again? Mr. Number. And I guarantee it right now. (laughs) I guarantee any woman's name you'll put in is going to probably come up clean 99.9% of the time. But you know what would fix like, like, what do we do in the comedy club? Only hire female bookers. You will completely eliminated any fucking bias. Because they're still going to hire fucking dudes. They are still going to book dudes. But they're never going to ask anyone to blow them in exchange for a booking. Every comedy club should immediately switch and make their booker a woman. Problem fucking solved. Like, you're not going to have anybody feeling like they have to put up with shit. Because if, if I'm in the green room and people are saying really fucked up shit and it's a female booker, I can go walk over to her and be like, hey, sis. I get it. We're at a comedy club, but they're saying some pretty foul shit in there. You know, maybe if you could just like, just come correct with them a little bit. And I would know that she wouldn't hold that against me. You know what I mean? Whereas like when it's a male booker in charge, like I got to worry that he's going to like, not think it's my fault, but he's just going to stop booking me because I make it messy. Yeah. Because he'll look at you as a complainer. You're a problem. Or I have to guess. I'm like, is he cool or is he fucking not cool? Like I got to figure it out. It's very easy for people to say, well, you should just complain to management if someone makes you feel uncomfortable, but people don't talk about, well, what are the repercussions of complaining to management? Oh, I have felt that in my other, in, in, in one of my industries before. I complained to management and then I outed the person publicly. And then I never got a speaking engagement in that industry again. Well, I mean, that's the thing is I was in my um, article about sort of porn's me too movement is that 
one of the benefits of quarantine is that a lot of people that had dreamed of going out on their own and, and being their own boss and doing whatever, like have started doing it because we have nothing but time and everything to lose. Right. So it's like, and everything I come back to like, you know, what solved this problem, universal basic income. <laughs> like if people knew they weren't going to starve, they would tolerate a lot less shit because they'd know that they weren't going to starve if they said something. But I think the real revolution is when everyone is basically an independent contractor because we outnumber them. You know, it's like once you get in the corporate structure, it just takes one or two people in the right place. And suddenly you have a group of people working in concert to exploit the most vulnerable. It doesn't take everybody. It's just got to be one bad person in booking, one bad person in HR, one shitty person that's a coworker. And like, you've got a conspiracy to fucking do whatever. Like, it's really easy to fall in line into that, that kind of a pattern and I think as you see people just drifting away from corporate and making money doing their own shit and buying their own health insurance and their own fucking stuff, they're more inclined to just like walk away if shit doesn't turn out. You know what I mean? Like if, if they see shit going down they don't like, that's easier to walk away when you know you can just go get another client. So if anything, this discussion shows how much more that, you know, we need to support performers and as well as podcasts. So we have some patrons to thank this week, as usual, for helping fuel the show and these types of conversations that we're having. And this week, we want to thank Brent, Yaman Chen, Bonnie Hawkskull, Ken Bradleclerk, Alexandra Dees, Howard Lee, Stephen Jones, Reed Decker, Eris Knight, Falco Hyfing, David Bullock, Bob Cold, Sam Montuve, Mark Romer, Wendy Cornwall, Joshua Rice, Ryan Shambly, and many, many others. And if you want to become a patron yourself, hop on over to patreon.com slash two girls on mic or two girls on mic.com. And Sovereign, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, guys, who cares if we didn't talk about the porn a lot? You learned something. Look, I, I didn't watch a lot of the X-Files when I was younger. I liked this one. This was a well, like, researched and put together. Por- You'll, if you like the X-Files and you want some good banging, A++ watch this porn. Five stars. I'm just all about download Mr. Number. <laughs> I, I, I already downloaded it and I'm that's what that's my afternoon entertainment today is just I'm putting in everyone's number because there are so many ephemeral people in my phone ephemeral I, I have a few of those as well I want to know. Oh, same. One thing, just be careful because I've been uh, copying and pasting the numbers from my iPhone into Mr. Number. And there were one or two that I accidentally called in the dead of night and then afterwards blocked them because I thought, nope, don't want this person calling me back. So somebody called me today about an hour before the podcast and screamed at me that I needed to die because I was telemarketer scum. So apparently my number has been like used as a telemarketer number. So and I'm like, sir, I'm like, sir, I'm a writer in California. Why would I have called you? You're mad at the wrong person. It's called Mr. Number Lookup. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. So Sovereign, where can our fans find more of you? You can go to Iwantsov.com to uh that's my only fans so if you want the not safe for work grown-up fun stuff go to iwantsov.com if you go to sovereignsire.net that's all my other shit so that's ill repute the podcast my old podcast observations the archive is still there when i'm doing stand-up <laughs> not for the next year also i am now writing for melmagazine.com so you can go to Mel Magazine and I've got some future articles up and my first column is going up in the next few days if they decide that they like it. (laughs) Um, And if that goes well, then I will be a featured monthly columnist there. So yay. It's awesome. Yvette, where can our listeners find more of you? 
You can find me at the SciBabe on Twitter and Instagram and at Facebook.com slash SciBabe, where I am sciencey and snarky and doing, of course, a weekly uh, Facebook Live on Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, because I don't know what time zone I live in. Uh, Alice, where can our listeners find you and more of the podcast? Guys, you can find all of the podcast at all the places on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at TGOM Podcast. Of course, tell all of your friends, your family, your X-Files fandom group. Let's see, where, where else can people? If you have a World of Warcraft chat you're in, uh, if you do any role play on a weekly basis, let your teammates know. Let your circle of mage friends know. They need to know. If you have friends who you talk about Skyrim strategy with, tell your fellow Dragonborn. Let them know about Two Girls on Mike uh, as well as twogirlsonmike.com. Yeah, you guys can find everything linked out there. You guys can find me, Alice, at Rational Blonde on Twitter. But you can also find us here next week. So so uh, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.